growing up in a toxic and violent household, as an adult, today's guest dealt with drug addiction, a life-threatening illness, and a near-death experience. He left a lucrative consulting practice to deal with the depression that had secretly haunted him for decades. He's an author of many, many books, eight of which are number one bestsellers. In addition to an author, he's also a coach and a podcaster. Please welcome Kellen Flukiger. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. I hear his Aussie accent every week. (laughs) How did you get into coaching? I'll tell you that in the story. Well, let's go. We're recording. Oh, all right. How did I get into coaching? Well, that was not what I intended. I started life in a normal, sort of normal place. I was born in San Francisco Bay Area, and I grew up uh, in a home with two parents. And, you know, we didn't ever go hungry or anything like that. We had good, well provided for. But my mom was a religious fanatic, and she was got married really young, and she didn't know how to help or require or cause her children to grow up well except by beating us. So I had discipline that today would be felony child abuse. Right. A lot of it. All my growing up years. I remember in high school getting dressed last in the locker room because I didn't want anybody to see I was black and blue. You know, that sort of thing. And um, what that did, how that shaped me is I, I came away with three things. One, you never talk about anything outside the family. Two, I suck. I'll never be good enough. And I can't ever be okay. And three... The idea of talking to someone, especially a counselor, they were all godless pigs, and their only function was to take you away from religion. So, and then there, of course, you combine that with all the stigma of mental illness. I mean, we had derogatory names for people like that when I was growing up. And so all of that meant that for my entire adult life, I never spoke to anyone about any of the things that were going on in my life. I believed with all my heart that I was not good enough. And the only thing I needed to do was to prove that I was okay. So eventually I would get the stamp approved on my forehead from my mom. That uh, is is a short sort of summary of the way I approached things. And then I was a creative, a musician. I wanted to be a musician, but I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the era when the hippies were first in real life. I remember the 1967 summer of love and the hippie funeral and the whole nine yards. And so the idea that I would be a musician was awful because those musicians, they're drug addicts and immoral and everything else. And I became my mother's worst nightmare. But that was what she was afraid of and was determined not to have any of that. And that was despite the fact that she was quite a good pianist, played the guitar. And her view was all that was only supposed to be used in either church or community service or something like that. But the idea of professional work carried with it all those risks. Um, What was your dad like? My dad was, he worked two jobs. He was gone a lot. Uh, My mom did not treat him very well. She, later in life, as I would visit them, I still was angry at the way she spoke to him and treated him. I felt like she belittled him and she was negative. I don't 
know that she meant to. And my mom grew up eventually, like there were two groups of three kids, my older sister, me and my younger brother, three. And then there were several, many years and then three little ones. When I wrote Tightrope of Depression, describing my growing up years, the little, the three younger kids were angry because they didn't believe the things I had written in the book. So my mom sort of grew up somehow in there. My older sister, however, she never said anything because she remembers, she's permanently scarred. She's dramatically overweight. She never married. She's been single all of her life. Just her, I didn't know anything about it then. Now, after years of working on this stuff and taking care of myself and recovery, both from drugs and depression, in my opinion, her whole life was trashed by this. Mm. And she's now four years older than me. And she's back at home taking care of my mother, who's nearly, my father's passed away 20 years ago. And um, my mom is not quite 90. And my sister's there taking care of her in her final years. But all of my life, I felt like my sister was completely ruined by that because she never did the things that ever helped her heal. And I didn't start on that road until I was in my early 50s. So for 40 years, uh, the first time I tried drugs was not because of peer pressure, it was because I was trying to escape from the life that I had. Mm. So I, I remember that at 13, I started like sniffing gas and stuff as inhalants because that was- You were chroming? What's that? Chroming. It's like when you sniff paint and solvents and petrol and- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Inhalants. Mine was gasoline yeah. because it was handy. We had a can of gas in the garage for the lawnmower. And so- and that was where wow. I started. How old were you? Uh, 13. Right. So for 40 years, something happened when I was, it might have gone on my whole life, but something dramatic, a divine intervention essentially happened when I was 52. So for 40 years, I went up and down the roller coaster. I was married and divorced three times. I never learned how to be a partner in a marriage. The women that I had attracted I, you know, I, I learned all this stuff later, but had their own problems. One of them was raised by an alcoholic stepdad and told she wasn't wanted. And another one's mom committed suicide when she was 12 and she was lied about till she was 21. And they all had their own massive issues, but I had no idea what that sort of thing did to anyone. Mm. I only knew how to do one thing and that was make money. So I went out and I had the facade of a very successful corporate career which I would periodically sabotage because I didn't deserve that. I made a lot of money. I didn't know how to be a partner. And so I just went up and down this roller coaster, which included various stints in rehab. It included ruining three relationships, uh, just like a movie. On, on the one hand, you look at it from the outside and it's like, wow. And on the other hand, you look at it and it's like, holy cow, behind the scenes. So kind of like that. Well, you said that it escalated and you ended up into drugs. When did you start doubling into stronger than the inhalants? Oh, high school. I started with, you know, smoking dope and doing other things. When I was in college, I tried things like LSD and speed and that sort of stuff. But it wasn't constant. It was in and out. My addiction was to self-loathing. So whatever happened to be available, alcohol, drugs, the uh, substance didn't matter. It was just, I want to be unconscious kind of feeling. Mm. 
you obviously worked on that self-worth, but what were you doing in terms of career up to the point where you were in your 50s when you sort of sorted? sorted? I had a 30-year career. I did two things. I opened a recording studio because I wanted to do music and I opened it for my own stuff. I had a very successful growing career in the energy industry, uh, partly for utilities and then partly working on the policy side for deregulation when there was a big push starting in California for deregulating electricity supply. So I became an electricity market designer, which is what? Probably as interesting as watching paint dry, but I was one of half a dozen in the world that did that sort of thing. So I had a very high profile. I've testified before Congress and uh, all that sort of stuff uh, in, in the context of those 30 years, but I had a 30-year career in the energy industry with progressively more and more high-level positions and ended up as a, the last 10 years as a hired, very, very expensive hired gun to come in and fix electricity market problems in different jurisdictions that had problems with their market design. That sounds very complicated in terms of market design. That either could go that either could go very corporate or very um I don't know, we'll just say that it was all above board. <laughs> Fixed market very design. Very complicated. Fixed market design. <laughs> well, electricity market design is not like, you know, we've deregulated our phone service. You can buy phone forever you want, and in some places natural gas, in some places, you know, other kinds of services. Electricity's different because you can't really store it. And so the the market itself, I mean, we have a we have an unwritten social contract. And the unwritten social contract is that there is always going to be enough. Mm. Like an electricity outage of any length is considered a, a public disaster. But you get on the phone at on Mother's Day and you call your mom and you get all circuits are busy now. Please try your call again later in the electric system. That's a blackout. Right. So in, when a disaster like the Texas electricity because of the, the ice storm that they had, they would call someone like yourself in? They would call it in after the fact to find out why that happened, and then we'd make some changes to the market design. It's funny you mentioned that because one of the things I did during that 30 years was I interviewed to be the CEO of that ERCOT organization that was in the news. And the only reason I didn't get that CEO job, this would have been in the early 2000s, is because Enron, the company that was responsible for a lot of this skullduggery back in that time 20 years ago, yeah, was against, didn't like me because I was reining them in in terms of their abuse of market structure. So they're based in Texas, and they lobbied the Texas Public Utilities Committee chairman. His name was Pat Wood, who eventually went on to be chairman of the federal commission. They lobbied him against me. Otherwise, I would have been I, – I probably would have been the CEO of ERCOT. When did you move from, from corporate CEO-level positions? In Well, I, I moved I, – I went to be a consultant. So that happened in about – and so I spent the last seven years from 2000 to 2007 or 8 as the consultant. Before that, I'd had positions in companies. So I spent the last seven years as sort of a hired gun in different places but doing stuff. Working in the energy sector, which is depending on which side of the fence that you fall in regards to climate, is quite destructive and very 
singular in regards to its um, purpose, then you go to looking after people and this softest, what I would imagine would be a softer side of work. How did that all come about? Well, my whole life changed. Uh, I was, it, it was almost exactly 30 years. I started in energy in November 1977, and in September of 2007, it's two months shy of 30 years, I had a dramatic, I was at the height of everything. I was operating as a high-paid consultant. I was working, I had a, technically a contract with the Queen of England, actually, that's what the contract said, but I was working in the province of Alberta, fixing their electricity market, doing the thing that I did, and at the same time, behind the scene, I was divorced for the third time. I was single. I had four teenage kids living with me, a single dad, and I was a $3,000 a week cocaine wow. addict. And I was a high-functioning addict. I did all that, and I was making so much money. The money didn't matter. 3000 bucks a week was lunch money. And I, I uh, had had a dramatic intervention. On, on a, in August of 2007, I got home on a Friday night. Um, I was getting ready to go out to party for the weekend somewhere to bash. And just before I went out, I had this incredible urge to turn on the television. Now that was incredible because number one, I didn't watch TV. And two, because I made all that money, I had the biggest, you know, cool gear you could buy all this stuff. But when I went to turn it on, I realized I didn't know how to turn it on. So I had to ask one of my teenage kids, how do I turn the TV on? So one of my daughters, she told me, showed me how to do it, and then threw the remote at me in disgust. I sat down to watch television for unknown reasons, and the program it landed on was a reality TV show called Intervention. And Intervention, if you don't know, you or your listeners don't know what it is, it's a reality TV show about family members that are worried about someone in their life caring circle who is having terrible problems and they hire a counselor and stage an intervention in real time and they film the whole thing. The protagonist in this particular program was a high-ranking executive with a cocaine problem. So I watched it for about 10 minutes and I thought, I'm not watching this crap. And I turned it off and got ready to go out somewhere in about a half an hour or 30, 45 minutes later or something. I just felt compelled to turn it on again. So, okay, now this time I knew how to turn it on. So I turned on the TV and the, the program started over at the beginning. And no, I don't have a DVR. And no, it wasn't on the program. And no, it can't do that. But it did anyway. So it scared the daylights out of me. I sat down and I watched the program. It did not go well. The protagonist refused all the help, stomped out of the meeting, and it ended badly. But it scared me enough that I went to bed, and I didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, that night, I went to sleep, and you think that was incredible, part two or three or whatever is worse. I, I went to hell. I... I had an experience that was my entire life, all of the failings and the choices and the relationships and problems and everything just sort of paraded in front of me, not in a attacking or accusatory way, but just I could see all these things. And at the end of some unspecified period of time, I heard a voice that said, it is enough. And again, it wasn't an angry voice. It was just 
it is enough. I woke up and it was five o'clock Saturday afternoon. So it was 18 hours later. I'd have no idea where I was for that time, but I got up and realized that I had been invited in the most staggering possible way to change my life. So I threw away about $1,000 worth of stuff that I had. I knew that I had to get out of this business and completely change my life, or I wasn't going to be able to do this. So that was the first part. I knew I was going to have to quit, and I, I did in about four weeks. But that was the part one of a a staggering intervention that changed my life. Did your kids know that you had this issue? Oh, yeah. They called the cops on me once and tried to get me hauled off to jail, and the cops came to the house, and, uh, you know, because I made this much money, it was a nice house and nice stuff, and they get called all the time to go to really bad places, and they looked around and saw everybody well-fed and lots of food and everything there, and basically chewed out the kids and the kids said, but my dad is a cocaine, whatever. And the cop yelled at my kid and said, none of your business, what he puts up his nose and basically got after him. Probably, I don't know why, but probably because of where they normally get called when there's these kinds of problems and everything was well kept in an order. And he's like, you know, whatever. And so, yeah, they, they absolutely knew and got mad at me sometimes. And, Whatever, yeah. So you said it took about four weeks to get off the coke. Did you book yourself into a rehab? Like, how did you get off it? It took one day. I threw away everything I had and I quit cold turkey, 3000 bucks to zero in a single day and never touched it again. That's how dramatic that experience was. It was four weeks before I resigned from the positions that I had and walked away from millions of dollars in contracts, but I quit. Stone cold sober in a day. That was it. No withdrawals, no nothing. Well, whatever it was, I just quit. So, yeah, there wow. was a lot of pain and a lot of struggle and everything else, but it was zero. That was over. Was what did work say when you walked in and said, see you later, I'm resigning? What did my work say? Yeah. Well, there was another incident in between in that four weeks. So two weeks later, uh, because of the positions I had uh, – I used to get gifts like CEOs and other leaders would give me things like expensive tickets, expensive bottles of wine, you know, this kind of thing, because they wanted to be nice to the guy that made decisions that affected their companies like that. Right. So I it wasn't bribable, but very expensive things right up to that. So one pair of tickets I got was to see Yo-Yo Ma perform at the premier venue here in Edmonton, Alberta. And, I was single again for the third time, so I went to the groups that I managed, and I simply said, hey, who likes classical music? And some lady in one of the groups said, well, I do. And I said to her, have I ever given you anything before? And she said, no. And I said, okay, fine, here, see you there. So I gave her the other ticket, and we met at the – this was two weeks, Stone Cold Sober. We met at the venue. The concert was electrifying, and if you know who Yo-Yo Ma is, then you know what I mean, and if you don't, that's fine. He's a concert pianist. Yeah, well, he's actually a cellist, and he's the oh. most spectacular cellist in the world. I've never seen a single person on stage captivate and electrify an entire auditorium like that, but it was just incredible. But anyway, halfway through the concert, I'm sitting there watching this, and this lady that had a ticket, she met me there. I I had a feeling, and the feeling I recognized from what had happened two weeks before. And this voice in my head said, <clears throat> you need to marry this woman. 
And I said, you are insane. Uh, I've failed at that three times badly. It's, you're crazy. Wires crossed. You're talking to somebody else. So later that night, we were backstage because they were backstage passes and meeting everybody. And the feeling came back and said, <clears throat> comma, and you need to tell her tonight. And I panicked because, uh, you know, I had no idea what, what to do. I argued in my mind with this, but you don't win those arguments. So I did. Wow. But she's a work colleague, everything. I just told her. Wow. And, you know, I could have been charged with sexual harassment and all kinds of stuff because she worked in one of my groups and all the rest. But she didn't do any of that. It went about like you would have expected. Are you insane? But she didn't do anything like dramatic to prosecute me. And in within two weeks, she had her own set of experiences. She resigned. I resigned. And we've been together for 14 years. Wow. So that was the other piece of the divine thing, because I got sober in one day, but nothing had been done ever in 40 years about what got me there in the first place. And so the angel, and oh, by the way, her name is Joy. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. She was sent to help me with the process of depression recovery, which she has done in the most staggering and impossibly supportive way possible. So she's now my business partner. She runs the other half, the coaching business, all of our backend stuff, manages all of our contractors and uh, everything else. And she is magic. So those two things are what turned me away from all that other stuff and make a choice to use the experiences I'd been through to help other people who want to change and be what they were meant to be. What was that conversation like in regards to I'm resigning, but then now I want to start a consultancy business in regards to coaching? With You mean with joy? Yeah. I, well, so when I decided to resign, <clears throat> um, and that was just a couple days before I actually left, I just resigned and left, um, and she had already decided that she was going to, like, we were going to be together, I went into her office and I closed the door and I looked straight at her and I said, I don't know what you think you signed up for uh, in terms of she knew I made a lot of money and all that stuff. I said, I don't know what you think you signed up for, but you might want to reconsider all this because I just quit. And I have no idea what I'm going to do. None. I'm going to go out and do something else and I don't know what it is yet. And I wanted to give her the chance to change your mind before she quit. Mm -hmm. Right. And she just looked at me and said, I'm in. And I've asked her a hundred times, what on earth? Everybody in the office knew I was using something, but he's ever saw, but there were rumors. And I've asked her since then, what in the world possessed you to walk away from a good career and go off on a nutcase journey like this? And she said, I just knew to the core of my soul, it was the right thing to do. And so that was the conversation. I gave her the chance to walk, and she said, no, I'm in. I can tell you're getting emotional about it now. Well, it's the most powerful thing that's ever happened. Yeah. I can't tell the story without getting emotional. Yeah. And you had no, like, with Joy, you had no real interaction on a social level before with her. I knew her. Yeah. Uh, she worked in one of my groups, so I talked to her a few times, but I didn't know her very well. 
so I knew who she was, and I knew she was one of my project managers in the groups, and but I had never, we'd never done anything or talked in any meaningful personal way, no. When you said, I'm going to start up the coaching business, how did that come about in regards to, uh, obviously you've got peers that are at CEO level, a high level, and then they're sort of saying, see you later, I'm now going to do a coaching. They must have thought you were crazy. They did. I, I simply said to myself, well, what do I know how to do? And I thought, well, for the last seven years, I've been the hired gun that people hire to come in to do things people don't think they can do. Hmm. I know how to help people do impossible stuff. What is that? I think that's coaching. Okay, let's do that. And so then I went and got some, went to some coaching schools and got some certifications and stuff like that. But that was the decision. It was all by intuition and by leaning into what is next. I mean, consider the dramatic events that had unfolded. I just expected, okay, if we're on a new journey, somebody help me out here. What do I need to do? And the intuitions came, and so I went and did it. And as soon as I started in the process of, of the joy of helping people overcome the kinds of things it didn't have to be drugs but the kinds of stories really because my addiction wasn't i mean cocaine was the drug of choice but the real addiction was to self-loathing i had to hate myself and i had to figure out a reason so i had to create that and every person that i talk to has some level of i'm not good enough story Mm. some a little and some a lot and that Eliminating that so that people can be what they need, want, desire to be is the greatest, it's the most fun I could possibly have and still be breathing. Where did the books come about? Because it's one thing saying, okay, I'm leaving this high-powered corporate career and then start up a coaching business, but then to write a book and air all your dirty laundry essentially, how did that all come about? (laughs) Good questions. So the first five books I wrote was a five-volume series on meditation because that's something I'd practiced since my teens in connection with learning martial arts and stuff. Three or four years later, as Joy and I were working to figure out depression and understand what it did and what it meant because it didn't surface immediately. It took a while before I went and talked to a counselor and they told them stories and they said, you know, you universally, they said, you've been have a victim or struggling with MDD, major depressive disorder, in terms of the DSM diagnostic manual, for decades. And one of them said, you know, the abuse from your family is still continuing. And that had to do with my sibs and the rejection of me. And, you know, nobody was talking to me in the family and all the rest. And one of them thought maybe, you know, bipolar, this, that, and the other. But that was immediate. And I had to sort of work through all that process in the process of doing that i finally realized i need to write a book about that so i decided in 2013 which is about five years into it after i'd been working on this to write a book and i wrote tightrope of depression my journey from darkness despair and death to light love and life and i wrote that book for three clear reasons one i needed to It was cathartic, therapeutic to just write it. I didn't write it in an angry, accusatory way. It's not a tell-all, get jump up and down. It's just, this is what happened to me. This is the story. The second reason I wrote was maybe there 
are other people who are doing this or parts of this that this might help. And number three was I wanted to talk to people who cared for those who struggled. And so those were the clear three groups that I was writing to. And I told my story, but I also told the things that I was doing uh, to try to overcome that meditation, different antidepressants, counseling, even some physical things like uh, nutrition and herbal remedies. I talked about everything that I'd tried and just told the story. I waited when I got done with it for a year before I published it because I was scared to death about telling the story. So like physically losing sleep, terrified to publish the book. So I did, but the, the waiting, uh, I published in 2015, so it took two years, but I, the, the last year was just waiting because I was scared about what might happen. People reading what had gone on about this guy who'd been in this, these positions of authority and what had really gone on behind the scenes. Now, you mentioned that your siblings weren't talking to you. I thought that they weren't talking to you after you published the book. So you were already having issues there before the book. Oh, I was officially taken off the Christmas list like years before. After my second divorce, I was persona non everything in the family. I have five sibs. None of them would talk to me. The only person that reached out to me once in a while, not surprisingly, was my older sister who knew what was going on. So she would send messages of love and encouragement periodically. Every few months, an email from her would come and that kind of thing, but nobody else. I think it's remarkable that she's gone back to care for your mother. It is remarkable. She has dealt with this in her own way. But when I, I mean, I'm not passing any judgment on her in terms of if she listens to this. I love her dearly. But I can see now that all the work and stuff that I've done in the last 10 years, that she got at least what I did. I remember her getting beat. She was a girl. And to me, that when I saw that, I was just, I couldn't even understand. She was in high school. And I remember her getting, like, whipped by my mom. And I, it was just incomprehensible for me to see and understand that because she's a girl, too. And, you know, to me, in those days, girls were not were girls. And boys were, okay, she's beating me. That's bad enough. But my sister, like, what is going on? And so it, it's trashed her whole life as far as I can see. Did you ever sit down and have a chat with your mom about it? Yeah. Um, it was not particularly interesting. Mm. She doesn't remember things, and she has a bit of what feels to me like revisionist history uh, going on in terms of remembering the physical and the verbal and emotional abuse uh, that was... When I say it would have been felony child abuse, I'm not kidding. Mm. She would have, we would have been removed from the home today, period, in a heartbeat. Going back to the coaching and everything, you said to me earlier that you've never actively advertised or reached out for um, clients. How have you managed to sort of fill your book, coaching books? Because you said to me that you're completely fully booked. 
So I have a sign on my wall. When I first started coaching, I was terrified. I hadn't dealt with my depression. I had no idea how to sell coaching. As long as I was doing something that was over there, my expertise as a market designer and all that other stuff, that was easy for me to do because I could show results. And I, could, I could just be cool because I was talking about that thing over there as a coach. You start out with the idea that you somehow have to be impressive. That is a terrifying place to be in, especially if you think you suck, because the idea of trying to sell yourself as a coach to help somebody is, is abjectly terrifying. So in the beginning, I was horrible at trying to get clients. And then I did try to get clients. And I was trying to find people who wanted to coach and then impress them and, and find problems they wanted to talk about and actively recruit clients. And I was terrible at it. I hired coaches. I paid them a lot of money. Uh, I got a little bit better and a little bit better. And finally, what I realized is that coaching is the people encouragement business. And in order to be good at that, I need to be working on myself and be in a good, positive, energetic space, or it doesn't matter what I say to people, because the truth of your energy is what carries the day. So there isn't a moment that that changed, but gradually I stopped thinking about finding clients and the sign on my wall says, I never look for clients. I look for people to love, opportunities to serve, and problems to solve. And so when I, and I actively meet people on purpose, but I never do it except with that frame of mind because I have no idea if they want help. I don't have any idea if they need anything. I don't have any idea who they are and what they're trying to do or be. And until I know that, and they have a sense of the fact that I care about who they are and what they're trying to do, there's no basis on which to form what is effectively an intimate relationship where a person has to talk about what they're afraid of, what they're struggling with, and tell the truth, or you can't do anything effective as a coach anyway. The thing that strikes me through, and the common theme through this conversation is you grew up in a household that was abusive for want of a better word your mum was very religious for your own account yet you seem to have described some sort of a divine intervention in regards to your recovery and now your business and it's interesting to me that you've not completely turned your back and shied away from um religion and I'm saying this as a general Aussies don't really talk about religion but I'm saying this in a broad sense like to me it would have been very easy for you to turn around and be like my mum did this because of religion I'm see you later don't want to bar of it it would have been not only easy but it would have made complete sense the problem is that my the essence that is is us, the thing that knows that we came from somewhere and that there's something bigger than us, like we still know that. And so the fact that my mom didn't know how to do that or didn't know whatever she didn't know doesn't change the fact that we all have those experiences and we know that there's something greater than us and we feel it sometimes. And even in, you know, you see world leaders we have a pandemic and, you know, the first thing out of their mouth, no matter how 
is prayers and God and everything else. So not in Australia. Uh, we <laughs> we we have a, we have a sense as as humans yeah. that there is something larger than us, and so I can't not do that. I don't care what my mom did. You know, she's going to have to figure that out with her own relationship there. I'm not going to deny myself the connection to the divine because she couldn't figure that out at that time. Hmm. You don't come across as somebody that's bitter. Like everything that you've gone through, yeah, it would have been so easy to fall down that bitter woe is me path. How good would I be as a coach in terms of trying to love and support people in their desire to grow if I came from a place of resenting or bitterness about whatever life has brought to me? How, how effective would I be? But it's not, it's not so much being about being effective. It's about you as a person. Like just the coaching business aside, I just – I find that remarkable that a lot of people would be stuck in that story of what happened to them as a kid. Well, I was stuck in that for 40 years. And when I got the wake up call, I made a choice. It took a lot of work. So I told you I've written 13 books. Uh, What I didn't tell you is I'm in the middle of eight right now that I'm actively working on. And somebody asked me the other day, yeah, why in the world don't you do one at a time? And the answer is, I don't know, it doesn't work that way. But the one that I'm writing right now that I just finished part two of, I'm two thirds of the way through and I'll have it finished in two weeks or three weeks. And you know what the name of the book is? Forgiveness, a journey of courage to a place of freedom and power. Hmm. Where are you wanting to go now? You've got the coaching business. What's sort of the next steps for you? You've got eight books on the go because I don't know why you would want to write eight books at one time. Apparently that's your process. <laughs> I don't, it doesn't. You know where one of them came from? I, had, I have a client. She, I help people write books. Because I've discovered how to do it, one of the books I wrote is this one, The Story Arc, Practical and Persuasive Magic for Speakers, Authors, and Storytellers. And it's about how to write books that are nonfiction. It's about how to, how to understand, collect, and articulate your experiences in a way that can be powerful to the right audience. And so I have a client, I have a group right now, people that I'm helping write books. And one of those, one lady in that group runs a, a process called um, Discovering Your Inner Genius or something, and she offered me a session to, to do that, and I spent some time with her, and I thought it was really good. And when she got done, she gave me a name, identified my genius skill, and, and in the process, what occurred to me is uh, I should write that book. And so I created the title, a subtitle, and started the introduction. And what she said... In her process, she came away with the idea that my superpower is I'm a flow generator. She said, I'm the only person she's ever met who lives in a constant state of that creative flow. And so I took that to heart. It resonated when she said that with me. That's true. So the name of the book is Masterpiece, Living in Flow and Manifesting Your Genius. So that's a book that I'm going to write about the process of accessing flow state and tapping into your creative genius. And I thought it, she articulated that 
thought to me. And so as we talked, I told her that I said, I'm going to do this. She said, you should write that book. And I said, okay, good. So I wrote it down and I created a place in my book file and started it. You've also, in amongst all these books, you've also got your podcast as well. Tell us about your podcast and how that came about. That's hysterical. This will give you an idea of how much joy means. In March 2020, uh, when the lockdowns were just starting, somebody who knows me and knows that I do motivational speaking and used to speak a lot at events before we couldn't travel, called Joy and said, does Kellen have a podcast? And we didn't. But Joy said, yes. And she came downstairs and said, we have a podcast. And so in March of 2020, I created a podcast. I decided if I was going to do it, it was going to be daily. And it's 15 minutes and it's called Your Ultimate Life. And I define that as a life of purpose, prosperity, and joy that you create by serving with your divine gifts. And I just recorded episode 522 this morning. Yeah, I'm looking at them. They're 17 minutes long, roughly. But why did you commit to daily? Because that's it. I know 15 minutes isn't a huge amount of time, but when you think about content and and editing and so forth, why did you commit to a daily podcast? It felt right. I'm an audio engineer, so I, I use Adobe Audition. I have the intro, the outro, and everything all done and organized. All I have to do is open it, turn it on, hit record, record the podcast, trim a little bit and render it and it's done. So I can do a 15 minute podcast in 25 minutes. Maybe I need to start using Adobe edition. <laughs> Separate from this, if you want help, I mean, I've owned a recording studio. I'm an audio engineer. I'm an expert at audio sweetening, professional level audio and everything else. And audition just happens to be the one that I use in the recording studio. I use some other stuff made by a company in Germany called Cubase made by Steinberg, but that's for music an audio recording, but in, in podcasts, I use audition and it's all set up. And all I have to do is open a multi-track file. It's all set up and then open a new file, use the mic. It's all set up, hit record. I tick my topics ahead of time. And I list the points I'm going to cover. I do a podcast. If I've got a guest, which I do, sometimes I just interview them and I'm good at it. I rarely have to edit anything out. And so most of it is one take, mm. trim the front and back. I've already got the intro and outro done and render it and we're done. Because I don't have a proper, I mean, I just do this in my home office because it's not a full studio. And often I can't control what the, because it's over the internet, I can't control what the guest's environment are. I, I don't edit out conversations as such. It still flows, but it's the background noise that I have to go through and edit out and so forth. I just use Audacity because it's free. Well, there's some plugins. I don't. I know what Audacity is, but I don't know how capable it is. Audition allows me to put in third-party plugins that do noise reduction and ambient noise stuff, mitigation. Once in a while, if the dog barks and there's some big old thing, then what I do is I'll just clap my hands really hard in front of the microphone and it creates an audio spike mm. when there's an error. And I'll say, hang on a minute, whack, and I'll create an audio spike. And then when I have to do any editing, I just look for those, just go there, listen, cut it out, and done. All right, I might need to look at some other editing software. 
Because <laughs> an hour and a half episode takes me about five hours. Oh, good heavens. Yeah. An hour and a half episode, you should... I, I shouldn't say should. That's wrong. <laughs> there is a way to do that in 15 extra minutes. Okay. Oh, I, I need to get some tips. <laughs> Because I'm going to two episodes next year, so uh, I definitely need to get some tips. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 easier than you think. It's creating a flow, and it your skill as an interviewer is good. And so, unless there's something destructive in the background, or you know, the dog barks or the phone rings, and depending on if it's a phone upstairs, I don't even take that out. Mm. unless it's loud, you know, like my phone here rang, but I've turned the ringer off here and something's up there and it's just far away. I just let it go. I listen back to it and it's like, yeah, you sort of hear it, but not really. So the podcast is your ultimate life. People can jump on to all the usual podcast places <laughs> to get it and including your um, website as well. Now that is um, – you're going to have to pronounce your name properly for me. www.kellenflukiger.com, and you do have to spell it right. The fun part about having a weird name is that there was absolutely no competition for me to get <laughs> www.kellenflukiger.com because there are two out of eight billion in the world, and the other one is my son. Wow. So you that's interesting. That's that unique, that name. There are two out of eight billion. Wow. And I'm assuming that it's Irish. I think Kellen might be Gaelic or Irish or something. Flukiger is Swiss, and it used to have an umlaut and was pronounced Flukiger, you know, back in whenever. And the three brothers emigrated to North America in the late 1800s, 1880 or 90. And every single Flukiger I've ever met in North America, Canada, or the U.S. has been related to those three brothers. I understand that Flukiger in parts of Switzerland is like Smith. They're everywhere. But in North America, it's extremely rare. Wow. Well, there you go. You can jump onto the website. The spelling of the surname is F-L-U-C-K-I-G-E-R. And uh, you can go and find all these services there. Thanks, Callan. You bet. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. Bye.